Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, for those who are joining us this evening, we have been going through the Ten Commandments together. Uh, and this evening we're turning to verse 14, but we'll uh, begin at the beginning of the chapter to set the context and to remind ourselves of the commandments that we have looked at in recent weeks. Exodus chapter 20 and on page 61 in the Church Bibles. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. As mentioned, we have been looking at the Ten Commandments uh, over the last number of weeks, and we have been trying to show something of the richness of uh, the law of God, that the law serves multiple purposes, uh, that it is something that exposes us to our sin. It is something that shows us God's righteous character, his will, that is, uh, for all of creation. But it is also something that gives us a framework for understanding how it is that we go about expressing thanksgiving to God. How is it that a believer lives a life of gratitude uh, to the Lord? And you remember, as we were reading this morning, when Jesus talked about the Lord's Supper, he was saying that this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus was explaining that he was, in that, he was establishing the new covenant that was promised uh, in the, uh, by the prophet Jeremiah, for instance. But as Jeremiah was describing the new covenant, one of the things that Jeremiah said was that the law would be written on their hearts. What law was he talking about? He was talking about a conformity of will between the believer and their God that they would submit to God's ways as good and right, and they would be uh, uh, united uh, with God's purposes. And so as we're looking at the law this evening, 
Uh, we are trying to do uh, uh, to see all of that is true. The law shows us God's will. The, the law convicts us of our corruption, uh, but it also serves as a, a way in which we are expressing thanksgiving to God. And as we come to look at the law again this evening, it is helpful for us to remember that the whole of God's law is relevant for the whole people of God. So whether or not we are married this evening, uh, this commandment is relevant for us because it is dealing with marriage, but marriage is not just something dealing with individuals. Marriage is something that affects families. Marriage is something that affects the church. Marriage is something that affects society. And marriage ultimately is something that is ordered and arranged by God for his purposes. And so this evening we want to see that as we come to the law of God, wherever we are ourselves individually, this is still a commandment that is relevant for us and is deserving of our attention. And what we want to see this evening uh, is is because the marriage bond is something intended uh, to picture something of God's goodness and blessing, uh, the marriage covenant is to be honored uh, by all of us. We want to look at this commandment in three thoughts. We want to think about what this command teaches us about God, what it teaches us about ourselves, and then what it teaches us about grace. First, uh, it teaches us something about God. Uh, Marriage is not a human custom that has been ordered or invented or established by human opinion or by uh, human invention. Marriage is something that finds its origin in the mind and the purposes of God. That marriage is something that God has ordered himself and has given to humanity for the enjoyment and the flourishing of human beings. Marriage, then, is something that we need to come to look at according to the designer's purpose. Marriage is something that God himself has established, and he has the right to dictate and to determine what marriage looks like. And when we turn to the scriptures, marriage is something that is instituted by God between one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment to one another. It is something of an exclusive relationship. It is something of uh, an intimate relationship. It is intended to be something permanent until death do us part. This was God's design from the beginning. It tells us in Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If we're going to understand marriage, oneness is key. Oneness is at the heartbeat of what marriage is trying to capture. That oneness between the man and the woman was something where they pledged themselves exclusively to one another to form a union where love and faithfulness could be expressed. And so God establishes or orders this arrangement wherein humans will flourish and be enriched, where they will enjoy God's gifts, but it is something that needs to be recognized according to God's boundaries. God sets boundaries concerning what marriage is, because anything that's important to us 
we are careful to protect. We're careful to guard it. And so when we think about marriage, that too needs to be uh, honored as well. Marriage is a gift of God's goodness that brings enrichment through differentiation. When we fail to acknowledge that marriage is something ultimately instituted by God, we at least risk the possibility of distorting marriage, of corrupting uh, this ordinance. Uh, Right now, even in our own country, we recognize uh, as a nation that marriage is between two individuals. But when we don't acknowledge God as the one who establishes and institutes marriage, even the idea of two individuals forming a union is something that can be challenged. Why two? Why not more than two? Why believe that marriage is something exclusive? Why not have an open relationship, a mindset? What makes marriage marriage? And when we come to the question, it is important that we acknowledge God if we're going to have the basis for which understanding marriage itself. So marriage is something that is instituted by God, and it is instituted uh, according to God's goodness. It is a gift of God for human enjoyment and human flourishing. But marriage is also something uh, that shows us uh, and points beyond itself to the love of God. Uh, This is is key as well. Marriage is not just something of this world. Marriage is something that is designed to reflect back on the character of God. It is designed and meant to reflect on the love of God himself. And so as we find throughout the story of scripture, God is a God who pledges himself to his people and who expects that devotion, exclusive devotion back from his people in a, in a permanent way, which is highlighting something of what marriage was meant to picture in the first place. So when we come to this question of marriage, what, what difference does it have? We begin by saying marriage is important because It is something that is instituted by God out of his goodness and from his love. It is meant to point us to the love of God himself. But even as we think about marriage, how do we frame the question? How do we think about marriage? Directs us back to, is this just a human custom? Or is this something that is designed by God? And that God needs to be honored as we come to look at it. So it teaches us something about God's goodness and God's love. But this commandment, uh, as with every other commandment, uh, teaches us something about ourselves. As with any good gift, uh, uh, this can be distorted. And uh, even the gift of marriage can bring much pain and much heartache. The commandment itself is that you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is the violation of that pledged promise. It is a breach in that sacred bond of trust between a husband and his wife. It is the rupture of that relationship where a married person breaks their pledge to their spouse and joins themselves with someone else. And in the scriptures, this was always treated as a very serious uh, issue. Uh, The violation of that bond 
uh, was something that was punishable by death in the Old Testament period, uh, both for the adulterer and for the adulteress. Why is that? Why is it that adultery was treated as such a serious matter? That will sound strange for many people. But it was treated as a very serious matter because it was, first and foremost, a breach of trust. Uh, adultery did rupture that pledged unity. It betrays the vow of fidelity. And it leaves a person unable, or at least broken in terms of their ability to trust in the commitment of another. That the union that they had has been severed, leaving them not only incomplete, but making them feel less than what they were before. And so it is, it is an attack on the uh, vulnerability, an attack on the love of another. It is also serious because it is a re- an act of rebellion against God. Uh, it is to despise God's will and to set one's own will above God. But we can think about the seriousness of this uh, uh, action in another sense as well. Uh, a 17th century Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson uh, pointed out something of the uh, twisted nature of adultery. He points out that adultery is something that comes after what he calls mature deliberation. And what he means by that is, is that when a person is in a certain situation, they may not have premeditated that when they go into the store, they're going to steal. They may not have premeditated when they're in a conversation with someone that they're going to lie. But in a desperation move to protect themselves, in, in the heat of the moment, they say something that does not bear wrecking with the truth. They do something in the heat of the moment that uh, they did not plan ahead of time. But what Watson was saying is there's something different when we come to adultery. This is something that requires deliberation, that it must first be accepted in the will before it ever gives rise to an opportunity to proceed. And so there's something of a mature deliberation here that calls for forethought, that causes a person to first find consent in the will and then to carry on uh, with the pursuit of acting out. And so it shows here how people will break faith in order ultimately to serve themselves. We live in a world, uh, a consumerist world, where we can get uh, so many things with such ease. Whatever you want, you can have it your way. We can apply that mindset even with the way that we think about our bodies. That we just think about our bodies as to serve our own pleasure. That we, we live in such a way that is simply to please ourselves, ultimately. Uh, that we are ultimately consumed and controlled by lust and by desires. And this is what uh, we see develop in different ways. I mentioned already the concept of open marriages. Surveys have been done in recent years that one in 10 Canadians are open or seeking an open relationship where there's not that sense of exclusivity, where they're not bound to another person, where they're not tied down to another but rather that they can carry on thinking about relationships simply as physical pleasure. There's no real sense of commitment to the other. There's no giving of oneself for the enrichment of another. 
but rather living to please oneself. This is selfishness in its barest form. And this is what we see happening where a world is living no longer with a sense of commitment on another, but rather on a commitment on self. It is aimed on self-gratification uh, and giving uh, to satisfy uh, uh, and using others to gratify ourselves. So it shows how controlled we can be and bent in on ourselves and uh, living uh, for our own uh, passions and desires. But we read there in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you, sh uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus was doing there was he was showing that, that the problem of sin is not just exterior. It's not simply physical. That ultimately the problem goes deeper uh, to the desires of our heart. That Jesus was showing the depth of this commandment. It's not just about an outward act, but about an inward condition of the heart. Because the law deals with the heart. And so Jesus was highlighting the importance uh, and the seriousness of purging that lustful desire. Uh, even going so far as to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, to tear it out and to throw it away. Jesus wasn't physically or literally telling us to cut out our eyes because even that wouldn't take away the problem. But what Jesus was doing is he was saying that we are not to take this sin lightly. That to live consumed by lust or is what John Freeman would call a craving of the heart that, that looks at other people who are made in the image of God as objects to gratify ourselves a craving of the heart, to do that is something that is a secret sin, a sin that others don't see, but is a sin that is serious and still ultimately enslaving and destructive. And so here Jesus was saying, although it is something hidden, uh, it is still something that needs to be purged because it will try to bind us and ultimately enslave us. C.S. Lewis once made that uh, observation that we need to be reminded that there are people uh, who are making money out of inflaming uh, those passions of the heart. We shouldn't be ignorant about even the consumerist world that we live in, even when it comes to the pleasures uh, 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 and passions of the flesh. So what does this commandment teach us about ourselves? Uh, it shows the the self-bentness where a pledged commitment to another can be broken ultimately to gratify self, where we can become so controlled and directed in our life by our desires that even what we believe and have committed to being true and right, we will abandon. And here, the scriptures are highlighting that even the person that we have vowed to care for for the rest of our lives, we're willing to hurt in order to gratify ourselves. Marriage then uh, is something important uh, because it has implications in so many ways in family life, in church life, in society at large. But marriage is important as well because it pictures us the bond uh, between God and his church. And so as we're looking at this commandment, we want to see ultimately what it's teaching us about grace itself. 
The Apostle Paul, as he talks about marriage, describes it as a mystery. You young people, when you hear the language of mystery, uh, maybe you think of a detective. You think of something that you just don't know the answer to. I, I guess it's a mystery because we don't know. When scripture talks about marriage as a mystery, though, it's not saying that these things are hidden from us. We don't know them. But these are things that had to be revealed to us so that we would appreciate them. And what the scripture is teaching us is that marriage is something that is revealing a, a, a deeper reality. That marriage is important because it's meant to picture to us the love of God for his people. That it's important for understanding God's work in history. Uh, and so marriage has that uh, importance uh, uh, throughout time as well. As mentioned, it is meant to picture the bond between Christ and his church. A bond sealed in love. The love of Christ for his church and the church through the spirit expressing her devotion to Christ in return. Now stop and let that sink in. What that means has huge ramifications, not just for how you think about marriage, but how you look at reality. It has huge ramifications for how we think about the world. When we look around at the world we live in, do we see a vastness of space and emptiness? Or do we see a world in which is really grounded in marital romance? Ray Ortland makes the case that it's actually the latter. He writes the following, If the Bible is telling us the truth about reality, then the universe that we live in was created primarily with marital romance in mind. The heavens and the earth were created for marriage, for the marriage of Adam and Eve. The new heavens and the new earth will be created for the marriage of Christ and his bride. The whole of cosmic reality exists as the venue for the eternal honeymoon of the perfect husband and his perfect bride uh, in marital bliss forever and ever. Do you see the ramifications? Tell me your view of marriage. And I'll probably be able to tell you something of your view of reality. I'll be able to tell you something of your view of God. I'll be able to tell you something about your view of history itself. Simply from the concept of marriage. But this is highlighting to us uh, uh, the story of God's grace. Because as you weave throughout the story of the Bible, you see that the people of God... Sinners down through the ages have proven to be unfaithful to God. We have broken covenant as we saw this morning. We are sinners who have not returned the love that is due to God's name. We are those who have been unfaithful to God. That despite his love shown to us, we have been uh, living lives uh, satisfying ourselves. But what the gospel is about is about a love story. It is about how... The Lord redeems sinners and how he commits himself to them in marriage. That ultimately it is about how Christ pledges his love to the unlovely. Christ came into this world to save sinners, to save sinners from their unloveliness. 
and to make them lovely. Christ came into this world to give his life ultimately by laying down his life for his bride. Uh, He takes away her sin and her shame. And when we look at our own life, uh, we can be filled with regret over our past and be tempted to think that, that God doesn't want anything to do with us. And yet what the scriptures are teaching us is that Christ came into this world not only to show his love, but he proves to be faithful in that pledge. That Christ came in uh, to, to make that bride beautiful and to make her radiant. As it says in Isaiah, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so in Christ, sinners are not only pardoned of their sin, but they are made lovely. That's what the gospel is about. It's about God coming and binding himself in a permanent relationship with sinners. That he is exclusively committing himself in intimacy to make those who are unlovely lovely so that they would ultimately return that love unto him in this sanctuary, this sacred bond of trust and of love. So what does this command teach us about grace? It teaches us Christ's pledge to the unlovely. It teaches us Christ proves to be faithful to the unlovely. But it also teaches us how Christ provides the sanctuary that we crave. Marriage is relevant for every one of us, whether we're married or not. Because marriage is signifying and communicating something we all desire. Sanctuary. We all want to be loved. Where we can be vulnerable. Where we can be safe. We want to live where we can be trusted. And where we can trust ourselves to another. And yet we live in a fallen world. Where that longing is only partially realized. The longing for that security, that longing for of safety, of being able to be vulnerable and yet to be loved, is something that is ultimately found in Christ. The one who pledges himself to sinners, the one who proves to be faithful to sinners by laying down his life for them, is also the one who proves and provides the sanctuary that we all long for. In Christ, we can be vulnerable and yet safe. Again, this morning we were thinking about how Christ gives the bread and the wine to his disciples. All of them drank of it. And yet Jesus goes on to say that they will all fall away from him. He knows their shortcomings. And yet he still provides for them. Christ knows our faults. And yet he came into this world for sinners. He knows our blemishes that we will commit, and yet he remains faithful. And so we see in Christ one who comes to give us that sanctuary of safety, where we can be loved and where we can be vulnerable, knowing we will not be rejected or cast off. One of the events in John's gospel about Jesus' ministry that's recorded is the woman that is caught in the act of adultery. You remember the Pharisees brought that woman to Jesus. And the reason they did that is because they wanted to test Jesus. 
Because the law of God said that the woman should be stoned. And so they said to Jesus, what should we do? Do you remember how Jesus answers them? Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And by one by one, they left. Because they were all sinners. And they dared not throw the stone. Until only Jesus is left with the woman. And Jesus asks, are all her accusers gone? And she says, they have all left. And Jesus says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. What was Jesus doing there? Jesus was showing the woman that first and foremost, his mission was not to bring condemnation. His first priority was not to condemn, but to forgive. His first priority was to retrieve sinners, to retrieve his bride. And so here we see Christ coming into this world, not to bring condemnation, but to bring forgiveness to those who were already guilty in their sins. Do you know that kind of faithfulness? Do you know what it is to be able to entrust yourself to someone and know that in all your blotches, you're safe? Do you know what it is like to live trusting in the love that another has pledged to you? That's what marriage is. That's what Christ came to give. He came to wed himself to his bride. And so as you think about this commandment, It is not just about social ordering. It's not just about ordering of society for human flourishment. It's that, but so much more. It's pointing us ultimately to the great marriage. Why God created the heavens and the earth in the first place. As Ortland said, it was was for a marriage. But it's ultimately pointing to a greater marriage. One where we can enjoy the safety and the protection of another's love. One where we can enjoy that that union of intimacy. One where we can enjoy that oneness that brings completion ultimately. That we might enjoy God forever. The seventh commandment is about respecting the institution of marriage. It was established according to God's will, not only for human flourishing, but to point us to God's grace and bringing sinners into fellowship with God so that they could enjoy intimacy and safety that comes from God's love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over uh, these commandments, we ask, Lord, that they would point us ultimately uh, to the Lord Jesus, that we would see that the longings of the heart ultimately find their fulfillment in him. And even in a society that is pushing against your ways, it is in your very designs that their longings will be realized. Help us, Lord, to be people uh, who treasure your purposes, who are humbled by your grace, who recognize our own shortcomings as those who have been unfaithful to you. But help us, Lord, to know the protection and the assurance that comes uh, from your faithfulness. 
and with the psalmist, may we be people who praise you for your steadfast love and faithfulness forever. Amen.